Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenas Hello and welcome once again to another Trademark Podcast. Um, it's Mr. Stefan Anulain, Stevie Nolan, for those of you who don't have Irish, work for Trademark, based in Belfast. I'm joined once again by a contributor to many of our podcasts, um, Comrade Stuart McGill. He's our go-to man when we're talking all things political economy and commodity markets and derivative markets and stock markets. And if you're wondering, we will be doing a podcast next week on the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, which has all sorts of implications for all of us. But tonight, we're going to take a different turn. Stuart, who's a very good friend of ours, is also an author and has produced a book, which I have read, by the way, Stuart, as you're wondering. I've got it in my hands here. Uh, I've read it good because millions haven't. <laughs> uh, he's co-authored it with a bloke whose name I can't pronounce. Is it Vincent Raisin or Raison? Um, yeah, I think he's from Sidcup, so it's Raisin. Raisin, all right. Vincent Raisin. And the book is called The Roaring Red Front, The World's Top Left-Wing Football Clubs. And it's a fascinating read. And it's uh, really interesting, particularly in these times, because as we all know, with the rise of the right and the rise of authoritarianism, even within so-called liberal capitalist states, it's nice to read a book that shows you there are people across the globe fighting back against fascism and racism and uh, shining a light, as it says on the back of the book in these dark times. And also because of that international connectedness they seem to have, which is the thing that fascinated me the most, was the connections between many of these football clubs. Um, and some of the clubs you'll know, some of them are quite famous. We're not going to talk about all of them, but Stuart can talk about the ones that are his favourites. But before we get sort of stuck into it, Stuart, um, why did you write it? Was my first question. What kind of what kind of provoked you to want to write a book like this? It's an interesting one. Someone said to me years ago, whenever I was first started thinking about, do I want to write anything? Write the book that you like to read yourself. And there was certainly. I always knew about various lefty teams like St. Pauli, who to a certain extent were the first ones back in the 80s when Saturday Comes covered St. Pauli. Very, very tiny team in those days. But because of the growth of basically fascistic neo-Nazi support of SV Hamburger, a lot of those fans actually went to go ahead and see St. Pauli instead. It was always an interesting bohemian neighborhood. This is the home of the Reaper Band, where the Beatles were. So it was always a different sort of place. Tough dog area. Still a very tough red light district. We'll talk more about that later, maybe. So we went to see St. Pauli 2017. Met a guy. I was outside the gift shop because I thought if I spend too much time in here, I'm going to spend an awful lot of dough. Vince, my cool rider, spent a bit more time in there getting stuff for his kids. I went outside and the guy came across. Uh, he's a good friend of ours now. Sonny. Sonny Tim, which is a very good name for a Celtic supporter. He just beat the sea Celtic play Motherwell the week beforehand. He saw me with the, the Celtic and St. Pauli scarf on and probably guessed I was a jock by the pale, pasty complexion and said, oh, I went to see you guys last week. And so he took us to a local pub called the Shabin. Lots of people in there, big St. Pauli fans, had been to see Celtic a bit. There was an Everton supporter who'd been trying to get in, trying to get tickets. So we enjoyed the game. It was one hell of a crack. I'm not such a big fan of the German obsession with choreography. It's a little bit lacking in spontaneity for me. So... We enjoyed that, 2017. Then, early 2019, we took off the Siraya Vallecano versus Celta Vigo. Now, Celta Vigo were a pretty left-wing team in themselves. 
And mm-hmm. uh, so we were interested there because there's a bunch of Celtic Eagle fans who were flying the pan-Celtic flag. And we stopped, had a chat with them. They said they were off to Derry for some left-wing political conference a couple of days afterwards. Interesting bunch of guys. And we thought, there's a big network here we should be talking about. Long answer, sorry, but they're the various reasons we thought we'd write the book. Nice one. And you did, I mean, you did travel quite a lot for this, didn't you? We went all over the globe for it. Yeah, we did. um, uh, I did uh, Buenos Aires and Palestino. Uh, and uh, we did uh, various parts of Europe, probably the most fun in some ways, and the most un-European would have been Casenza, way down in the instep of the Italian boot. Uh, that was quite a trek. Hopefully nice one. Vol- yeah, the Casenza was cool. And hopefully for volume two, we're going to do uh, Brazil, uh, and maybe a club in uh, Africa, one of the big Egyptian clubs there, apparently has got a bit of a left-wing reputation too. We're certainly thinking about doing volume two, right? Very good. No, it's amazing to see the extent and how many of those clubs exist, actually, particularly. And they're not all small. Some of them are quite big clubs. Well, massive clubs, actually, some of them. That's the most fascinating thing. That Yeah, one of the things I most enjoyed about the book was the way you framed it as well, because you're really honest about attitudes that exist towards football in particular uh, as a working class sport in terms of its supporters. And Edward Galliano reflects that really well in that quote you have in the book from Football in the Sun and Shadow. I'm going to read them out because I think they're really important points to talk about. The first is... um. And it's that kind of a strange kind of unity that exists between some left-wing thinkers and right-wing thinkers on football, and particularly on football fans as well, which is kind of deeply prejudicial. I'll read them. The scorn of many conservative intellectuals comes from their belief that soccer worship is exactly the religion people deserve. Possessed by soccer, the proles think with their feet, which is the only way they can think. And through such primitive ecstasy, they fulfil their dreams. The animal instinct overtakes human reason. Ignorance crushes culture and the riffraff get what they want. And he follows it up with another great uh, line. In contrast, many leftist intellectuals denigrate soccer because it castrates the masses and derails their revolutionary ardour. Bread and circuses, but circuses without bread. Hypnotised by the ball, which exercises a perverse fascination, workers' consciousness become atrophied and they let themselves be led about like sheep by their class enemies. Um, and I want to address both those opinions, if I can, Stuart, because it's really interesting, you know, and because there's an expectation, isn't there, that working class people and working class both that we're just simply bigots and racists, and therefore any activities that we kind of get involved in will, will reflect our innate racism and bigotry. Did you find that? What, what do you think about those two opinions? Do you think they're real? Do you think that's true and, and that exists in society? I think they show a deep contempt for the working class, uh, equally so, but perhaps. The left-wing notion, and a good friend of mine in, the, in Spain, she's a proper lefty, wouldn't read the book because uh, she felt football was nothing but a distraction from the masses. It's just a circus. And they said to her, when you look in this country, the places where you get the real labour militancy, you're talking about uh, the west of Scotland, you're talking about the northwest, the northeast, um, and also to a certain extent South Wales, so the sporting obsession there tends to be a little bit more rugby union. But these are places where people fight back, they fight the system, and they're mad on sport as well. I think we're all capable of holding you know, a couple of interests in the head. I love football, I'm vaguely obsessed with football. But at the same time, I write books about it. I write stuff on political autonomy. You know, you, you can do both. So it's a massively contentious idea. And also the right wing view. There's something I talk about later on in the book in the final, uh, the final chapter. This woman from some kind of um, think tank. And she said, well, the shock it was that actually when you look at bigoted attitudes, middle class people are the ones who are really bigoted. And she was somebody who writes about some kind of, some kind of progressive thinking think tank and was shocked that White middle class people, they're more bigoted. Because the working class are associated with being a bunch of loud guys, boorish guys in the pub kicking up. And I think both 
Galliano was a great writer, by the way. Everyone should read Galliano's Open Veins of Latin America. Maybe we'll talk about that when we do something on imperialism. But he's a regular working guy from a completely football-mad country in which every Uruguay, they say, it has no history, it has its football, which is a little harsh. But a football-obsessed country, both middle-class and working-class people are obsessed with the game. It's similar in Italy as well. It's only really here where you get this uh, this kind of condescending attitude towards football fans because they're working class. You say here, of course, you're talking about Britain, although we could have a separate podcast on the contradictions of uh, supporting British clubs in Ireland and support for Indigenous games as well. Because we, I think we may do a, a podcast on the GAA, but I'll be taking my life in my hands when I do that. But um, I, I'm going to yeah, do that. No, anyway. wave one indeed down. It's always, <laughs> always puzzled me that you got a pub in the middle of the heart of the Falls Road, completely dedicated towards Manchester United. So, I know. Uh, now, sometimes I do take the garrison sports attitude, particularly when it gets down to a rugby union. I refuse to, I refuse to celebrate the success of the Irish rugby. But union. for people who don't know where that boozer is, it's just around the corner from our office, the Red Devil and Jowl Jarrig in Irish. Um, one of the things that I remember when you said that idea about, particularly the, the view of football and its supporters as being sort of thugs and thuggish. So we know the history of violence at football matches. We might get to talk a bit about that, but I do remember going to a meeting years ago, back in the nineties, somewhere in Europe. I didn't even think twice about it. I had a crystal, I'm unfortunately, I'm a Crystal Palace supporter. I had a Crystal Palace away kit or something. I just put on this football top and I went into the meeting and the fucking looks I got from people around the table, it was as if you'd have walked in wearing a, a swastika or something on your back. You know what I mean? Because the immediate assumption was, well, he's a fucking thug because he, he watches football. And, that, and that, that attitude on the left and the progressive called liberal left, I suppose, still is, is deeply rooted there and it's deeply, deeply anti working class and prejudicial as well. But the, the next question I wanted to bring up that I wanted to talk about was that. And this is central to the book and central to the discussion about left-wing ultras and about left-wing clubs is that, you know, is, is football, such as it is, does it have the potential for mass or for any kind of working class organisation, particularly given that most of the clubs you looked at weren't fan-owned? I mean, they're privately owned institutions. Many of them are owned by fucking oligarchs or corporations. I mean, I struggle with this one just simply because of the money involved in football, I suppose. And we all have these kind of discussions all the time. I remember working out once that Wayne Rooney, I'll talk about players now, not the clubs, but Wayne Rooney had more in a month than my dad did in 40 years <laughs> working as a carpenter. So I have these constant struggles and tensions about following football, supporting football, when, you know, so many clubs are owned by oligarchs. How do you square that? How do, how do you square that? And did you? And what did you find out when you were travelling around talking to ultras and left-wing clubs about those contradictions and tensions? Oh, it's a big contradiction and tension. Yeah, and it does cause me some problems. You're talking now about the money that football is earned. Now, to a certain extent, this reflects anti-working class prejudices. My missus is always talking about this, and she's not a football fan at all. People never complain about the money that Andy Murray makes or that golfers <laughs> make because there is this notion footballers, working class people like Rooney should know their fucking place and how dare he make that much dough. When you look at the money which is generated by football, I think about 25% of the entire budget for the production of television in the country is accounted for by the premiership TV deal with BT, Amazon, and with Scott. It's a, a huge figure. I think something like 500 million comes into the country just from foreign TV stations actually paying for the football. And you look at the number of people that visit the country to watch football. You know, this is a huge fucking earner. So it's a very short career. Um, the players do get a hell of a lot of dough, but after about 10 years they're finished, then they have to go off and do something else. So given the amount of money generated, do I resent the players making that much? To a certain extent, I do. This is a long answer, sorry about this, but I'll get round to the point in a minute. Whenever Celtic won the European Cup in 67, which was my first ever football memory, and it's been going downhill ever since, to be honest, mate. 
But they won that with a bunch of guys who came from about 25, 30 miles to Glasgow. And they weren't paid much more than the average well-skilled labourer at the time. Well, the skilled engineer in the shipyards. They were paid a little bit more than that. But that was wrong. I mean, in the old days, they used to go and hold the games up at Celtic before the guys could get in to watch the game. So the money was going somewhere and it wasn't going to the players. So it's quite right the players get paid a decent back. To get back to your, your original question here, it's a problem, but football does present many opportunities. And to a certain extent, who owns the club is immaterial. Raya Vallecano, great club, great fans, good for the neighbourhood, good bunch of proper lefties. They turn up whenever the fastest try and march in the area. The guy who runs the club is an idiot. To a certain extent, it doesn't matter. You've got working people in a collective way defying business football. And to a certain extent, it benefits the cause because it gives them a focus of hatred and it makes people understand who the enemy is because it's close on your doorstep. It's the guy that runs the club. So to a certain extent, who owns it is immaterial. And the great thing about football is it's a collective working experience. If you get, I always tell people about my uh, son's friend. He went to West Ham when he was about 15, 16, and became a typical, sorry, I shouldn't offend West Ham fans here, but he became a unpleasant young man with racist views, hands up and sings songs about no surrender to the IRA, which we could question the accuracy of historically. Uh, and he's become an idiot. Had he gone to someone like Dulwich Hamlet, which is more local team to him, he would have come across a quite different uh, sort of masculinity. You know, a bunch of people that uh, it's more important to them if you're a decent human being rather than can't even beat somebody up. Like at St. Pauli, any sexism, any racism is stamped on completely. And these are people who are, to a certain extent, you would say they were classic sort of regular working class tough guys. Probably talk about this later. But that sort of good masculine role model is important for kids. And I was exposed to a quite different bunch of masculine role models when I was a, a younger man. And it turned me down the wrong track. Lucky enough, I got away from it. But you know, football provides all those opportunities at a micro and a macro level to transform attitudes. I suppose it's interesting in some ways because in football you get this microcosm of working class, particularly well, it depends which, which part of the world you're talking about because I appreciate there's different, there's a, there's a class dynamic to football as well. But in, in areas, the majority of fans would be working class. And you get right-wing and left-wing supporters of even within the same club. Obviously, in, in, in some of the clubs you studied, you get rivalries between a left-wing club and a city and a right-wing club and a city. But in, in that microcosm, you see um, capital recruiting working-class people to their cause. I mean, that's, that's what it's about, isn't it, really? Like, does the working-class stand up for itself and its own values and its own beliefs, or does it get recruited to fascism? And you see that in a microcosm in, in sport. And I suppose in some ways... That speaks to the concept of the stereotype, not the stereotype, so far. it is a stereotype, but it's also based in some truth. There's violence and aggro in football. And it's yeah. sent to its football to be to be in a site of aggro and working class violence that it's not directed, that it's not part of a cause. But I mean, you make the point in the book, obviously, and it's an obvious point, but it's a good point you make. The tribalism and aggro exists before football and outside football. And the football simply, you know, it reproduces society's divisions. It, it reproduces or reflects society's violence. It's not the, it's not the birth of it, is it? No, no, I tell it reflects, but at the same time, it does perpetuate. I might be doing a speech and uh, presentation in Glasgow the more about this. Football is a cause of unity, a cause of division. It reflects society, and there has been agro-tribalism around a long time before football, but part of the nature of the game. Also, it's whenever you get, I mean, you can have, you know, the whole Celtic and Rangers thing will be accentuated by the fact that you go to a game and the Rangers gives you a batter around the head, then you end up hitting the prods. Or... A Rangers fan gets a bit of a kicking from the Celtic guys, he ends up hating Catholics. So that you can perpetuate like that. Um, I'm just back from Serbia. 
and uh, the Red Star Belgrade versus Partizan Belgrade over the years have been reaching and it's accentuated the divisions between those two clubs there. Broadly speaking, Red Star, the police team, more Serbian, more nationalistic. Partizan Belgrade tend to be the more working class team, more federalist um, and a little bit more left wing. But these days, it's just a punch up between two tribes that absolutely hate each other. And the fights over the years have accentuated uh, the, the bitterness. So I think football has a responsibility. It reflects, of course, it does, but it also perpetuates. Yeah, um, you mentioned before that um, you know you think football can have a role to play in working class organisation, but also you can and then create unity. I was amazed in the the book about the connections between the various clubs globally, not just near each other, but on an international level. And that was really interesting to see those connections and genuine connections, and in fact political connections. You mentioned before about people travelling to Derry to go to a political conference, and I know people that go over to Europe to go to left wing conferences where they have meetings with other football fans, left wing football fans. You know, so yeah. do you think that that do you think footy can you know be that kind of international connection between left-wingers at Parson provides that international language that can be, as you say in the book, a kind of an agent of social bonding, partly through, of course, its massive global cultural appeal. Is it somewhere where the left should be organising and talking more openly about, about the potential there? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's a, a very important potential catalyst for that. It's there already. I mean, we're um, talking tomorrow about a game I've played a small part in organising between United Glasgow, who are the refugee team in Glasgow, uh, and Napoli United, who are their counterparts in Naples. So that game is taking place on May 21st. Uh, tell me a bit about that one. Is that the No Mean City derby? That's it. That's it. Yeah. yeah. It's out with a guy called uh, Pietro. Big, big bear of a guy uh, in a city where people are actually quite tiny. I sometimes think I could make the basketball squad in Napoli. Then you meet Pietro. He's a huge guy. Who went and met him? had been banned from Napoli city centre for a few months. I don't know what the fuck he got to to get banned from there. Big guy. Uh, begun this side a few years ago, Afro-Napoli United. And I wanted to talk to them about what the, they play in the fifth division. They're not a big side, but they, they, they got some really good players there. And they developed very, very quickly over the last four to five years into a side which could get at some point to the top tier of Italian football. And they're, and they're, a, sorry, and they're a refugee team. Yeah, they've begun as a refugee team. Yeah, they've moved on since then. Because there's a, yeah. a bunch of people play for them now. But the focus of the team, as long as the four founders, including Pietro, stay in charge, will be to you know, basically help people who are disadvantaged one way or the other in Napoli. They've begun Afro-Napoli United, now just Napoli United, because they, they take into account anybody who has issues, which many people do, in the metropolitan area. And I was just out of interest, how is that club funded? Or who runs them? Or is it privately owned again? Or is it fan owned? Now, this is going to be, this is just the four owners. This is a small-time operation right now. Right. Uh, later on, they get bigger, they might need some more money. And that always does pose a problem. And I think we talked in the book about Red Star of Paris, one of our favorite visits, just after we uh, wrote the book. Well, in the process of uh, getting the final draft done, some venture capital company took them over. And uh, that does cause a problem for the fans. Yeah. High in Brazil as well, up in uh, Salvador. They've been uh, taken over largely by another venture capital company, and the Baha'i fans are proper lefties. I mean, these are the guys that will very happily fight the class war. So these issues arise, and it's a matter of keeping the club's integrity in the face of some owners who might not believe in it. But United yeah. Glasgow are a good side. So the United Glasgow versus Napoli derby will get a lot of people together, and hopefully we can begin some network on the back of that. Oh, that's brilliant. That's... It's there already, but we just need to exploit it more. You talk in a book quite a lot about, and there's a number of clubs you focus on, but I mean, the St. Pauli phenomenon is one you talked about, the German club, 
Um, and you said it's important to understand really because of the value and the potential of football can do in working class areas and kind of within and, and in terms of promoting a left wing view of the world and left wing values, you know. Um, tell me a little bit about the St. Pauli brand, about why it's so why it's so global, why it's so well known, why there seems to be so many like um, teams and other left wing football teams that want to have a kind of, you know, relationships with St. Pauli in particular. I guess they are the governor left wing club. Maybe some selfie fans would dispute that, but I think St. Pauli is the big recognized left wing brand. I mean, this is a side that was a Mickey Mouse little team back in the 80s. The phenomenon, the growth phenomenon has been fantastic. And it's partly down to the marketing aesthetic, the Jolly Roger, and the neighborhood itself has got a certain sense of cool around it. Uh, and it's very difficult to get a ticket these days. We only got them because we know some people in the club. I have certain issues with aspects of the support across there. They can be a little bit up their own strasser and they're not universally popular across the German left because they do take themselves a little bit seriously sometimes. Uh, and by no means everybody who supports Sempoli is a big fan of the Sempoli ultras nor indeed the political stance. Mm. But I think the thing about them is they make the whole left-wing gig seem cool. To a certain extent, it can be associated with a bunch of... Uh, you know, pinko liberal intellectuals, people that knit their own yogurt, people that are the butt of many jokes from, people like George Orwell, if we talk about that ridiculous uh, diatribe of his in the road to Wigan Pier about cranks and nudists, all the kind of left-wing mm -hmm. left people he like to ridicule. And yeah, these are a bunch of guys that uh, go out there like a... Just, as a, just as a small, I should probably ask you this off, off, uh, off mic, but the German left is problematic when it comes to the Palestine. What's their position on Palestine? Does that have interest? This is an interesting one indeed, yeah, because uh, our mate there, Sonny, he's quite good mates with Hapoel Tel Aviv, uh, and uh, well, there are a bunch of Israeli lefties, but they're still Israeli. And on the national question, they keep quiet, but keeping quiet mm. on the national question is to take the side of the establishment. Uh, and uh, yeah, Sonny is quite pro-Israel in the back of that. That has caused some issues with uh, the relationship between the Green Brigade and Celtic and the St. Pauli Ultra. Yeah, because you would, you, so you wouldn't see Palestinian flags being flown as St. Pauli, I suppose. No, no. And the Germans, of course, are a bit uh, sensitive about the whole anti-Semitism issue because of their unfortunate history. But at the same time, uh, it's, it's difficult to go ahead and support the, the silence about the Palestinian issue. Yeah, well, let's hope the Celtic ultras will be able to go over there and maybe educate them on that particular issue, you know what I mean? Because I know that... The... Many conversations have been had. All right, very good. I know that the, the German left is infected by that anti-Deutsche bollocks as well, you know what I mean? Which is very, very fucking dangerous and very nasty. Anyway, anyway look, getting on, um, Alab, were there any other particular left-wing clubs on your travels in Europe or in Latin America that really struck you, that, that you came away with thinking, things, something you didn't know that, you know, after you were really impressed with? Any, any clubs that you knew very little about, but you learned a lot when you went to visit them that really impressed you? Zenza was a great trip. It's an interesting city. I mean, it's way, way deep down south in Calabria. And one of the things I'm fascinated about is in Italy is how different it can be from other parts of Italy, even neighboring regions. Our friend Sarah from Napoli came down to translate for us. She speaks perfect English. But she said whenever the Cosenza people uh, were talking to each other, she had no fucking clue what they were saying. So they spoke to each other in some sort of standard Italian. Uh, and uh, I got in touch with a couple of people from Cosenza before. We met. Well, my bet Vince actually met a guy in a pub called Bulldog. Now, normally over here in England, pub called the Bulldog, you wouldn't go anywhere near it. This was a kind of 1980s ska pub uh, that was big with this whole craft beer phenomenon, which Vince is into. He went in there, guy came across and chatted to him because not many people go to Cazenza. It's not a big tourist place. The guy's dressed like a 1980s skinhead. He's got the little Harrington jacket on, the jeans. 
is in a band called Lumpen, as in Lumpen Proletariat. Big Kazanza fans, and one of the bands that um, inspired them was called Totally Pissed. The power of the soft culture of these islands is immense. Everywhere you go, you get references to British culture. Even weird stuff like Andy Cap, who is now seen as a symbol of the working class forgotten football fan. But Kazenza, who may be three big factions amongst the lefty fans, we went to the South Curve. A guy came across and spoke to us in the South Curve, who pointed to the North Curve, which was much busier, and said, those people there, they're system. They're just system. They were more conventional left. The South Curve was a little bit more uh, anarchist. And also when we had a chat with some people afterwards about the basis of the split, uh, they said it was also down to what they called business, which in Calabria can also mean your relationship with some of the local gangsters, because this is a place which is run by a very, very dodgy bunch. I think they call it the Drangheta. Uh, and of course, in Napoli, you have uh, La Camorra, which is referred to by people there as the alternative government. So you get an insight into how life is lived across there. Very different from ours. Well, that sounds interesting. I can't wait. I'm, I'm really fascinated as well about um, your idea of um, volume two. There's a couple of clubs I'm going to have to mention. One, because it's, they've been playing a really important role actually very recently in Ireland, and that's the Bows, Bohemians, um, and yeah. under their T-shirt, you know, Refugees Welcome. Um, massive seller for them, of course, but also taking a very brave... Now, it's not, it's not a fan-owned club. It's a private-owned club or whatever, but they, they took a very brave stance in standing up for refugees and asylum seekers, particularly at the moment in Ireland at a time when the, the, there is a genuine threat from the rise of a fascist right. I mean, there were demonstrations in Dublin against asylum seekers that were in the thousands on a number of cases. Now, there was a turnout of 50,000 on the on the left-wing organised response march, organised by La Kela, kind of coalition of different left groups and trade unions. Um, but the Bows took a really brave and and are continuing to take a brave stance on that. The other one that I have to ask you about, because I've read in the book about Dulwich Hamlets, and I grew up in South London, and I, I knew Dulwich Hamlet because I know that Ian Wright played for them. That's where he started off before Palace signed him. I had no idea they had that kind of culture, that kind of left-wing progressive culture. Waterbank is a good, very good friend of ours who works for Trademark Belfast, and I made McDade, who's been involved with Clapton FC for a long, long time. And we all know Clapton because Clapton were famous, I suppose, for us anyway, because of the top they kind of designed that, uh, that kind of reflected the Spanish Civil War and the Republican side. Is Clapton going to come in under your gaze? Uh, Clapton will probably cover more. Yes, Clapton stands for something, which is good, and I respect them. And uh, I think maybe Clapton see themselves as more working class than Dulwich, because um, I remember when I first went to Dulwich Hamlet, I didn't know there were that many white people left in South London. Uh, <laughs> and it's a, bit of, it's a bit of a middle class ghetto down there. But yeah, Clapton will most certainly be covered more in the second book, despite the fact some of the supporters got a little bit arsy with us. But hell, it's football. So so look, um, thanks for the conversation. To finish, like give me your give me your final reflections on uh, on left wing ultras and whether you think just again like, the role they play in society, can they be basis of working class organization or are they just places for working class people to go and wave flags of Che Guevara about that have no real impact? Like what, what social role do they have in those communities? What or political role that I have in those communities? Does it go outside of the stadium is what I mean? I think certainly, yeah. To a certain extent, they reflect and perpetuate. Like, the Yekas were right, Vio Canal play. Always a lefty area. Uh, but uh, the status of the club and the fact that everybody in the neighbourhood looks up to and uh, respects the club, that helps perpetuate the right politics there. All right, because uh, football, again, it's about role models, not just individual role models, but role models on a kind of political basis. The success of St. Pauli shows that the left can be strong, energetic, aesthetic, and at the same time, not the bunch of liberal, namby-pamby, limp-wristed people that they're characterised by 
the right wing sometimes. So it appeals to a certain element of younger masculinity. So I think it has to be done. There's also, let me just finish very quickly here about the German fan project. But they actually went into the clubs with the intention of looking after the needs of the younger supporters there, but also making them realize that supporting football is an inclusive thing. So the German fan projects were quite instrumental, I think, in changing the trajectory of German politics compared to what's happened in Italy. Because you look at the, the alternative for Deutschland, they've reached a, maybe about 12 or 13% mm-hmm. ceiling on their support. The fascists are now in charge. And like I say in the book, had we exploited the fact that in the 70s, you had the Chelsea firm and the Millwall firm, two of the main leaders, this is back in the 1970s, were black. There was that strange contradiction there between the racism and the people they looked up to. Had we gone into the clubs then with the intent of making people more inclusive, more understanding, then we could have changed the trajectory of the culture to a certain extent. We could have got away with this racist bullshit. So I'll say one thing for the Bundesliga. Whenever I do watch it, there are many black players there. You hardly ever see anybody get booed. You don't see any racist bullshit there. Some of the old clubs from the East, like Hansa Rostock maybe, but in general quite inclusive. So football is a focus of working class attention and should be used for good. If I can just uh, talk a little bit about the football fans charter as well here, man. I don't know if I've actually talked to you about this before, but this is something which has arisen from the book. You do notice people, football fans everywhere get exploited ridiculously. They take the pitch, Raya via Carano. I had to queue for eight hours to get a ticket. The people that run the clubs don't give a damn about supporters. So I'm putting together a charter, um, like the old original charter, six demands on there for how people get looked after. And it covers things like having a veto. Supporters groups, say, call them a trade union, they have a veto over fundamental changes to the way the club is run, like the change of name, the change of stadium, that sort of stuff. Uh, and also about safety. This, uh, particularly after what happened to Liverpool in Milan, something has to be done about uh, the police and the authorities need to be charged with making sure that the safety of supporters is the paramount concern. Yeah, no, well, we'll t- we can come back to that. I know you did mention the footballers' charter, and I, lo- I love the idea of it. Of course, making demands is one thing, having the power to ensure that the people with the power, i.e. the owners of the club, because that's when it comes, we, we know this as Marxists, it comes down to power and ownership, and fans don't own the club. So what's their leverage? Their leverage, of course, is their, is their numbers and what they can do. We saw that with um, what happened in, in England and in the English League when they tried to break away and make the Super League, and that was that was brought to an end by, by fan power, really, and by the resistance of the fans. So it's an interesting topic to, to be looked at how capital plays out its role within football clubs, knowing where power lies there. Look, thanks for that, Stuart. Could talk all night about that subject, and there's loads I want to talk about, including international football and the role of the right in international football and the role of you know fascists in football and all the rest of it. For those of you who don't remember, it's called The Roaring Red Front, the world's top left-wing football clubs by Stuart McGillan and Vincent Raisin. Available in all good bookshops and online. And buy it, enjoy it. The money's going to a good cause. I.e. Stuart's pension because he's an old geezer and he's a bit skint. So buy plenty of books and look out for volume two. Stuart McGill, thanks very much. Thank you very much indeed. And then after the SVB crisis, my share portfolio is fucked. So yeah, go out and buy the book. <laughs> all right, folks. Thanks very much. Um, that's the end of this trademark podcast feel free to check out the podcast platform which you'll find on leftblock.ie also at leftblock.ie for new tiktok channel and feel free to consult the patreon and bung us a few quid money goes to political education projects in ireland thanks very much and good night either way that comrades was trademark belfast thanks so much for listening in we'll see you soon either in the trenches or on the victory parade upper workers and slang foil. foil